0: Edward Kimball was a faithful Sunday school teacher of the Mount Vernon Congregational Church in Boston. On a spring day in 1855, Mr. Kimball visited one of his unconverted students, who was then employed as a clerk at Holton's Shoe Store. Kimball found 18-year-old Dwight Moody wrapping shoes as he came into the store and the teacher approached his student and explained the purpose of his visit in very straightforward terms. He said, I want to tell you how much Christ loves you. A simple message. As he expanded upon it, before Kimball left the shop that day, D.L. Moody had knelt down on the floor and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Spiritually empty and struggling with guilt, Moody later explained that after that prayer, I was in a new world. The birds sang sweeter and the sun shone brighter. I'd never known such peace. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, the Savior, we know what he means. We understand. We've experienced this sense of peace. God has revealed to our souls the wonder of God's love for sinners, and that love is to us an infinitely sweet and joyful reality. God loves me. The creator of the universe, the pure and holy and righteous judge of the living and the dead, loves me. If that brings no joy to your heart, if it brings no comfort at all to your soul to know that God loves you, then you need to be born again. You need to come to know that love and to be transformed to the core of your being. But further, we might also say that true believers also rejoice that God loves others. There's a member of a Bible honoring church that once confided in me that he was really bothered by the fact that God loved the whole world. That got my attention right away. And he explained to me that he felt that as a son of God, it just didn't feel like he was very special to God because God loved everyone. Well, the best I could say, I didn't say this to him, but the best I could say is that such a man is a spiritual brat that needs to repent. But I think there might have been more evidence there than just that. I think there might certainly be evidence there of a man who doesn't understand saving grace. When Jesus Christ saves your soul, when you come to discern that God loves me, you rejoice to know that God loves others. A genuine believer rejoices that God loves me and rejoices that God loves others. But where the real trouble comes sometimes is when God desires to love others through me. Now that becomes a different issue. Regenerating grace rejoices in the doctrine that God loves me. It rejoices in the doctrine that God loves others. But then God comes along with his word and says, I want you to love others. I want my love for them to pass through you. Sometimes that becomes extremely challenging. It's a place where my faith in God is often severely tested. Facing just such a test, the Israeli prophet Jonah opted, we know, to run away, didn't he? He rejoiced that God loved him. He rejoiced that God loved Israel, for that matter. He rejoiced that God loved others. But when God said to him, I want you to love somebody for me, that was too much. And his ordeal is recorded for our justification in the pages of the Old Testament. I invite you to turn there to the book of Jonah. If you have trouble finding it, it's right after Obadiah. Just find Daniel and Matthew and aim somewhere in between the two. But we find in Jonah chapter 1 that God commissions Jonah to confront Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Who is Jonah? Can you place him? I say this often, but I had a seminary professor that said, You guys know more about the NFL quarterbacks than you know about the Old Testament minor prophets. And nobody argued the point. They're they're a bit obscure, and we wonder about the history. We're not really familiar with it, but who is Jonah? Where does he land? Jonah is in the northern kingdom of Israel. He ministers there as a prophet of God, and he follows in the footsteps of Elijah and Elisha. So there's this great revival of the prophetic office under these great prophets, and Jonah is one of these guys. He's, he's among them in a sense, a generation beyond them, but he is among them, and he is growing off of their strength in Israel. He's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 in verse 25, where we learn that he's from the town of Gath Hepher in Galilee, just a bit north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And he's called there a servant of God. That's not a throwaway phrase. For a prophet to be referred to as a servant of God means this is a man who has given his life to serving the Lord. He's a man in whom God has put his trust. He's a man who is delivering the truth of God to God's people. 2 Kings chapter 14 reports further that Jonah prophesied that Israel's king Jeroboam too would successfully reclaim the northern and eastern borders of Israel that were once held under the great king Solomon. Now, this was a happy day for Israel. Jeroboam was a wicked king, as were all of the kings of Israel, but he was one of the most capable and powerful kings to ever rule the northern kingdom. And Jonah got in on the good times. He got in on the good times of Israel expanding her borders, while at the same time remaining faithful to God. If you know anything about Old Testament history, your mind's saying, Now this is a bit unique, and it is, isn't it? How many prophets of God in Israel had the privilege to prophesy a positive message to a king in Israel? Not many. But Jonah had that privilege. And how many prophets in the northern kingdom prophesied whatever the king wanted to hear, only to be exposed later by actual history? Many. Many false prophets. So Jonah is a very strange bird, and was then undoubtedly a popular prophet. What he prophesied came true, and yet he remained faithful to God, pleasing God and pleasing the King of Israel. There was a twofold message, essentially, that Jonah is delivering then, and that is that the Assyrian kingdom to the north will remain weak, and they're not going to be a problem under Jeroboam. History bears this out, that Assyria was at this very time in a weakened condition. But the second part of that prophecy was that Israel would enjoy this great prosperity under Jeroboam. So assuming that 2 Kings 14 came before the events recorded in Jonah, we can't know that for sure, but it seems logical... The happy prophet Jonah again receives God's word. But this time, the message is extremely troubling. Arise and go to Nineveh. What's Nineveh? Nineveh is a very ancient city. It's mentioned as early as Genesis chapter 10, located about 500 miles to the north and east of Israel. Ruins from this city can be found today on the banks of the Tigris River, just north of the Iraqi capital of Baghdad in the city of Mosul, In Jonah's day, Nineveh was a leading city of the Assyrian kingdom and it represented that empire of Assyria, which was a constant threat from the north upon Israel. Although living nearly 3,000 years ago, Jonah would have viewed Nineveh in a way that we really understand. We understand in our own setting, how would a Jew view Saddam Hussein before his untimely demise? How would a Jew look at this man? How would he conceive of him? It's really not a whole lot different. And Saddam reigned in the area right where the kings of Nineveh reigned. But how would they look at it? We know Saddam was a man of what would you say? You know it. Even though we're not living in that particular portion of the world, we're aware there's a man of tremendous arrogance and a man of tremendous brutality, wasn't he? Many eyewitness reports indicate that Saddam would routinely drop people into vats of boiling hot water. Women would be raped in front of their husbands and fathers. Women would be beheaded for prostitution right in front of their families, even though he consorted with prostitutes all the time. There was the gassing of the tens of thousands of Kurds. Whole families and towns wiped out because of this man's brutality and cruelty. All forms of experimental torture, particularly with electricity on people, pulling out teeth with pliers just to see the pain. That's our day. Well, in Assyria, it wasn't a whole lot different. Ashurbanipal writes one author, the grandson of Sennacherib, kings in Assyria, was accustomed to tear off the lips and hands of his victims. Tiglath-Pileser flayed captives alive and made great piles of their skulls. And we know this. Why? We know this because they carved these atrocities into stone to boast before other nations at their, their cruelty, the Assyrian kings. Ashurbanipal II boasted of one of his conquests when he said, The heads of their warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against the city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader, he wrote, I flayed him, his skin I spread upon the wall of the city. He also notes mutilating the bodies of live captives and stacking their corpses in piles. His successor boasted of his own cruelties, a pyramid of heads I reared in front of this city. Their youths and their maidens I burned up in the flames. These were wicked people. The brutality and the arrogance was horrendous. But before we cast too many stones at Jonah, we need to know his setting, his situation, what he's facing. And God says, I want you to go to those people and to proclaim repentance. Judgment indeed, but repentance. For Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim this message of repentance would have been like asking a Jew to go to Baghdad and call Saddam and his cronies to repent of their atrocities. And is it that Jonah's afraid to do that? Jonah will show a fairly high capacity of no fear of death. It really doesn't seem to bother him uh, many times in this short book in a lot of different ways. I don't think fear is really what bothered Jonah, that he was afraid that he was going to be tortured. As the book unfolds, what it reveals to us is that his chief concern is not for his safety. Here's his chief concern. If I take a message saying that God's judgment is coming, you must repent, what does that assume? It assumes the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. Jonah wants nothing to do with that. God, these people are wicked. I don't want to take a message of forgiveness. When God calls sinners to repent, it implies the possibility of forgiveness. Jonah knows this, and he does not like the prospect, and so he decides on a course of action. There is a desire that wells up within his heart, The Assyrians to him are despicable people. They're horrible people that should be judged by God. And the desire to despise these people and to not be part of God's merciful plan wells up within Jonah's heart and he says no. I don't want anything to do with this. We find God's call upon Jonah in the first two verses, and then Jonah running from God's Word in verse 3. There's a horrible word that starts this verse. It's the word, but. God says, Arise and go to Nineveh, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The location of Tarshish is unknown, but many identify it with Tartesis of Spain, about 2,000 miles to the west. Wherever it is exactly, it is obviously a crossing of the Mediterranean Sea that is in view here. So from his town of Gath-Hefer, just above Nazareth, he makes his way south along the coast to the port city of Joppa, boards a ship there, pays the fare, and begins to head across the Mediterranean Sea. Why? It's stated two times in that verse, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, the first thing that comes to our mind in all of this, in light of, for instance, Psalm 139 that we've read earlier here today, is, is Jonah such adult that he doesn't know God's everywhere? Does he really think he's going to get away from here? And there's a lot of critics of this book that say, oh, that's absolutely the case. Jonah knows that God is just a regional deity, and if you get off of his turf, he'll no longer have any power. He certainly doesn't have any power over the sea. That's Poseidon's work or some other God's work. But God will be gone if you get off into the sea. I don't think that's at all what Jonah is doing. I, don't th- I think it's misreading the idea that he's going to flee from the presence of the Lord. I think when we think of the presence of the Lord, we need to think of the temple at Jerusalem. And we need to think of the Israeli people in the Promised Land. And we need to think of this prophet who stands before the Lord, hearing the revelation of God and addressing the people of God in community. It is extremely rare anywhere in the Old Testament to see a prophet receiving a message outside of the land. Now, there's a couple of times where that happens when the people are in exile. Well, they're not in the land to receive the prophecy. And so I think putting this together, the point is that the epicenter of God's saving purposes on earth was the land of Israel. And it is there that God revealed his word to the covenant community. So Jonah is saying, I want out of here. I want to get out of the spotlight of God's grace, of his love, of his purposes. I want to be gone. Leaving the covenant community, he apparently assumes God will leave him alone. He'll get somebody else to run this mission to Assyria. And so he says, I'm washing my hands of the mission. I'll leave the covenant community if that's what it takes. I'll leave the people of God. I'll leave the popularity that I have as a prophet. The reverence, the honor, all that goes with it. And he has the money to... Set out on a voyage across the Mediterranean, which undoubtedly as a prophet in Israel he had never done before. These people, says Jonah, do not deserve forgiveness. And so I'm not going to provide the opportunity. Never. And off he goes. Well, God chases Jonah down, beginning at verse 4 and through the remainder of the account, with which we're very familiar. We'll move through it fairly quickly. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. You notice the phrase, but the Lord, It contrast with verse 3. God's word comes, but Jonah runs. Jonah runs, but God chases him. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. There's lots of hurling going on here in more ways than one, I'm sure. But God hurls the wind at the boat, and they're hurling the cargo out, and pretty soon they're going to be hurling Jonah out. It's a tempestuous sea, and the seamen are afraid of the sea. Yet with courage they do all that they know to lighten it. But where's Jonah? Verse 5, He's gone down into the inner part of the ship and has lain down and was fast asleep. We have no idea how that's possible. Maybe he fell asleep before the storm started. Perhaps that journey from Gath-hepher down to Joppa, which would have been an arduous one, was made him exhausted. And perhaps also the guilt was eating him up on the inside and wearing him out. But the man sleeps. And so ironically, mariners fear the storm while the prophet, who knows nothing about it, rests. And perhaps it's while fetching another load of cargo that Jonah is found fast asleep on a sack of onions or something down in the hold of the ship. But they find him. They discover him. And that leads to some discussion. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah keeps getting this message, doesn't he? God says, Arise, get up, and call out to Nineveh. Now the captain's saying, Arise, get up, and call to your God. Nobody's leaving him alone. As one has said, these were the very words with which God had disturbed his pleasant life a few days before. The ancient Near East polytheists believed the gods had subdued the powers of chaos, but those gods could withdraw their protection at any time. And so in their minds, when there's a stormy sea, which embodied chaos, when there was a stormy sea, you call out to the gods and see if one of them will listen and come back to protect and to help you and keep you and calm the chaos. But if Noah if Jonah rather knew another god in all of this, that certainly wasn't going to hurt. They were syncretistic in their polytheism, and they were quite happy to get help wherever it would come from. So please get up, man, and start calling on your god. Maybe he'll answer the phone. All the others are busy right now. We're not getting anywhere. So they wake him and ask for his prayers. Then they go to plan B. Because the storm does not go away. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. We don't know what the lots were exactly, but something along the lines of dice. They're rolling the dice, and they point unmistakably and providentially. Remember, the casting of the lot in the lap is of the Lord in His providence. And they point to Jonah as the cause of the storm. So he's surrounded by these mariners who are looking for an explanation right about now. They say to him, verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. I mean, have we done something to offend you? Have you done something to offend this God? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? He answers in terms that were often used when Jews addressed pagans, when he says, I am a Hebrew. Verse 9, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, they'd found the information they were looking for. This didn't exactly help them out a whole lot. They're pretty worried about what they hear here because, as we find in the next verse, Jonah had told them that he was fleeing from the presence of this God who created the sea and the land. Had never heard of such a great God. They had all kinds of gods who created parts of things and protected parts of things, but not one who created the sea. And so the men, verse ten, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, "What is this you have done?" Not in our text a question mark, but an exclamation mark. I think that's a good idea. They're not asking a whole lot of questions here. They're basically saying, "What are you thinking?" What on earth are you thinking? This is crazy, man. You worship the God who creates the sea. He gives you his word. You run away, and you jump right in a ship and get in the sea. This is crazy. They're all over his case. And asking for an explanation, then they said to him, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So we've, we've identified the problem. All that's happening is the sea is getting worse. He said to them, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come Upon you. I think he's just simply drawing the logical conclusion. There's only one reason for this storm, and that's that Jonah's in a ship in the sea. Separate Jonah from the ship, and there will be no more reason for the storm. He knows it. Well, the mariners fear God apparently at this moment more than Jonah does. And they're saying, well, that might be the case. It's, but they come up with a noble plan to try to circumvent it. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed hard. Hebrews says that they are digging into the sea with their oars and they get back to get back to dry land. But they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They recognized the sovereignty of God, and they poured out their prayers before him, saying, do not hold this man's blood against us. Now when it says that he's innocent, that doesn't mean that they're telling God he's wrong. And the man's okay. They're just saying we haven't decided anything on him and we haven't passed judgment upon him. We've not been able to determine what he has done that is wrong. And again, in their pagan way of thinking, you know, God, if you're not the God, Yahweh, behind all of this, please don't hold his death against us. But they've done everything they can to get this ship back to shore. And it's not going to happen. So, verse 15, they do the only thing they know. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. You can picture it, can't you? They grab him on the deck and they lift him up and they hurl him overboard. And there is Jonah hitting the water and disappearing below the murky surface of the deep. And the sea stops its raging. These mariners naturally feared the storm, verse 5, but when the storm stopped, we notice that their fear increased, and they feared God exceedingly, verse 16. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now we lack the information to conclude whether or not they became true followers of Yahweh. What is said here could very well just be them in their pagan way, offering a sacrifice and acknowledging that Yahweh had stopped the storm. They certainly have done that. The other thing is that sacrifices were never offered on the deck of a ship. They weren't offered anywhere but at a place that was sanctified for sacrifice. And so we're probably uh, reading here an abbreviated account. They needed to get back to shore after the storm had stopped to get new cargo. And it's likely that that's when they offered sacrifice to the Lord. But at any rate, we see them in their reverence for God, And in some sense, Jonah has been a tremendous witness to them, although he had never planned it or desired it. But for Jonah, on his part, sinking under the waters of the deep, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish and swallowed up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'd like, by God's grace, to look more at length at this fish and Jonah's presence in there. We don't really know Uh, All there is to know about this, it's just given to us in very straightforward terms. We'll investigate it perhaps next week a bit more. But I think what is necessary to see is Jonah is running from God, and now he has just been thrown into the realm of death. The ancients made a correlation between Sheol, the realm of the dead, and the sea. As I mentioned, there was no place that more typified the chaotic aspects of this world. And no place that was to the ancient world any more dangerous or fearful than the sea. We have a fair degree of fear of it now as well, don't we? Though our ships are made of steel and so much larger. But yet it is a fearful place. It's dark and foreboding and it, and it stood for the depths of death. Well, Jonah is down there for three days and three nights. Now, he didn't have a waterproof Timex watch, all right? It's not 72 hours right on the dot, but it's a figure of speech. It means he was down there for a while, and it generally refers to parts of three days. If it was parts of three days, they would use the phrase figuratively three days and three nights. It was just a figure of speech that we don't understand because of our precision with time. They didn't have watches. They didn't clock time as we do but he's down there for a period of time. He's down there, in a sense, in the realm of death. He has been called to take a message of repentance and life to the Ninevites, and he finds himself now surrounded in a realm of death. He's running from God perhaps in less dramatic ways, most days of our lives, but generally speaking, every believer runs from God sometime. Isn't this exactly what the major challenge is for our life so often? One commentator wrote these words, I am Jonah. And I say to that, amen. I am Jonah. We run from God all the time. It may not be something so dramatic. It may never find its count in a book. You hope it doesn't. But we do this, don't we? Here's where it comes down to. When we experience circumstances, things we can't control, and God's Word comes in and gives us instruction in how to respond to those circumstances, and we honestly say in our hearts, I dislike... Obedience to God in this situation more than I dislike disobedience to Him. God's Word in this situation is more distasteful to me than sin. We don't say it in every situation unless we have lost faith and if we are walking away from God or evidencing that we've never known Him. But I mean for those who are genuinely believers who have been genuinely reborn by the Spirit of God, we don't chuck out the whole bunch. We rejoice that God loves me. And we rejoice that God loves others. But when He calls us to love others for Him, or when His Word proves difficult in some way in the circumstances of life that we face, sometimes His Word becomes hateful. It's something we don't want to hear. So let's put some circles around this account and let's work our way into the more narrow message. But on the outside circle, in the broadest sense of the term, first of all, we learn and are reminded from this passage that God's sovereign rule from heaven's throne renders useless any attempt to circumvent God's will by trying to manipulate the circumstances of life. Difficult word of God, difficult circumstances, what I'll do is change the circumstances. If I can manipulate things and do things my way, then I don't need to listen to what God has said. It's insanity. It is never going to work any better for us than it's going to work for Jonah, but we do this, don't we? When God's word seems to conflict with my welfare, I must learn to yield to God's will and obey Him in utter trust anyway. If God has asked you to do it, if it is in His Word, He will give you the power to pull it off. It's the right way to go. But manipulating the circumstances is an insane dance with fantasy. It will never accomplish good. Francis Thompson's famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, starts with these words, I fled him, speaking of one on a spiritual Run away from God. I fled Him down the nights and down the days. I fled Him down the arches of the years. I fled Him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears. And as the poet recounts this running away from God... The poem continues and describes God in his unrelenting, untiring, unhurried pursuit of the wayward child. Never giving up, always stalking this hound of heaven. And then the poet concludes saying, I had to admit that though, quote, Though I knew his love who followed, yet was I sore. A dread. I knew the one following me and stalking me loved me. But I was still afraid. Why would you be afraid that the one who's following you loves you infinitely? These are profound words. He says, lest having him, I must have not beside Isn't that the fear that we face? To have God may mean that I don't have something else I want very much. In my Christian journey, that's a fairly routine issue. In our flesh there are things we desire And to go with God means we've got to turn our back and leave them go. To not do what we want. To not gain what we want. And rather to take God alone. Do you know this experience? To accept the way of God is to turn from everything else that we want? Well, you know what the truth is in that situation? What I think Jonah is telling us is that God is everything we want. We don't see it. He is everything that we want. In our regenerate spirit, we just need to recognize that and see that, to know that if it meant to have God and nothing else, I would have everything. There is no sin that will accomplish any good in our lives, ever. There is no purpose that we can pursue outside of the will of God that is going to bring greater joy to our hearts. If God says it, then it is His path to our fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in Him. As the poet, Dante, put it, in thy will is our peace. I don't ever have to question that. If God wills it, that's my peace. That's what's right. That's what's good. In the end, no matter the trial. Believer, this God from whom you are running is the one who saved you, the one who liberated you from sin. Does that make any sense at all? If we have Him, we have everything. There might be some young people among us right now, you are fighting very hard with disobedience to your parents because there's things that you desire and want that they don't. And you know what God's call is upon your life, but you say, I'm thankful for God's love and His promises in a lot of respects, but that's one call that's just too hard. Maybe you're dealing with a besetting sin that you are coddling. You're saying, I know what God's Word says about this. I know that it is not good. I've made a thousand promises to myself, but honestly, I love it. And I want to stay there in this area. It may be a refusal to do what you know God wants you to do. There's no question what His Word says, but you don't want to deal with it. You're running from God. And when we run from God, we must recognize that we are turning our back on our joy. Always. Secondly, broad circle, God's sovereign rule from heaven's throne renders it impossible for genuine believers to run away from God's will for long. God's sovereign rule from heaven's throne renders it impossible for genuine believers to run away from God's will for long. It matches the first idea. We can't change circumstances, and we can't choose sin above God and get anywhere. But if we are running down that path, we can also know that there is, in reverent terms, a hound of heaven. Are you running? Face that truth. God loves you, and he will not stop pursuing you. It isn't going to happen. You're not gonna find that cozy little corner in this world where you can hide from God. Not this God. Not a God who loves you infinitely. He'll never let you go. That really should bring us great comfort to know He'll never let us go. He'll never lose track of us. He'll never go on vacation. Now we must persevere in our faith. We must continue on doing what is right. But if we belong to God, we will. One means will be his relentless pursuit when we walk away in sin. If you're running from God, he's going to be there. Now, that's not an excuse to continue on. Jonah went through some fairly tough times running from God. It doesn't go well. But there is this assurance that he'll be there. And that we as his people will obey him because we must. If we fall away, it is because we do not belong to him in the first place. But this is what God does with his people. It started right at the beginning, didn't it? Adam and Eve fall into sin, and what does God do? Sit on his hands and say, oh no, now what are we going to do? He says, Adam, where are you? He's stalking him down, graciously but unrelentingly. And God has been up to it ever since, chasing down his people when they wander. I thank him that he does this. I'd be lost if it were not for his grace to find his sinners. Now let's take a circle in, get a little closer to the heart of what is specifically said here. Let me say by third way of application, God's love for sinners must be celebrated not only on a personal level, We must learn to serve all people as the instruments of God's love. We must learn to serve all people as the instruments of God's love. Now here again, it gets a little heated. This isn't easy. But I wonder if you put yourself in Jonah's place and you look at how he would have viewed the Assyrians, or you take a Jew in the time of the Second World War and how that person would have viewed Hitler going to Berlin and proclaiming salvation. Is there anybody in your world that fits in those kind of categories? You just say, I just can't see it. Those are people for somebody else to win to Christ. If that's the case, you're running from God's love. And there's a danger for us in this culture. Now there's in the ancient culture where where the New Testament believers are operating, everybody's a pagan and you're one candle in the darkness. But in the culture that we live in, there is a Christian influence that's fairly significant and it used to be more significant, it, it would seem. We have got to be cautious that we don't get so politically oriented that there's certain groups of people in this culture that we really don't want to talk to about Christ. They're the enemies. They're the bad people. They're the people we don't like. There should be nobody on this planet that we put in that category. No one anywhere. We are to be used by God. We are to make ourselves available for His service to proclaim the gospel lovingly and willingly to anyone, anywhere where He opens that door. Are you willing to share the gospel with all? Can you look at every category of person and say, if given opportunity, I would love to share the love of Christ with them. If not, you're running, and you need to turn around and come home. May this church always speak the truth of Christ to all people at all times. We're given privilege. Let me go back to the young people and this clear command of God's Word to obey your parents. Do you know that loving your parents is really what's at issue here? It is loving God to obey His word, but sometimes what they want you to do and what you want to do are two very different things. But loving God is done in such a way that you love your parents by obeying them. God is calling you to love others, to spread His love to them. Are you willing to take that call? Maybe there's someone that you need to forgive Maybe there's someone, you need to pursue reconciliation with them, and honestly, in your heart, you're saying, I don't want to do that. I would really rather just be away from the presence of the Lord when it comes to that assignment. I don't want to face that person. I don't want to tackle that issue. I don't want to be reconciled. I'd rather go to my grave an enemy. Is there somebody like that? Is God speaking to you? Are you running from God? Are you running from his word of reconciliation and forgiveness? That person may be an enemy. Maybe an enemy that you need to love and speak to and be the instrument of God's love to them by doing the hard thing that God calls you to do. That person may be your mate. You say, we're happy to kind of just coexist together, but there's issues we're not going to chase. There's things we're not going to address. There's going to be a distance between the two of us because I'm just not going to do what God's word says. To love my wife as I love myself. To reverence and honor my husband. I can't do it. You're running from God. And you need to stop running. Maybe there's a believer who's running away from God and it's your call to confront them with the love of God and to speak graciously, gently, but firmly about what should be done, what needs to be done. And perhaps with the counsel of others, but you say again in your heart, that's too hard. I don't wanna do that, that's too difficult to do. We're just right where Jonah is all the time, aren't we? I use just a few examples and we can fill in so many more blanks, but where is it that you're running And how is it that we can be used as an instrument of God's love to love people in difficult situations, at places where God's Word proves very hard, such as forgiveness and reconciliation, and the witness of God's saving grace in Christ to a world that's hostile and against it oftentimes. How can we have this love? You know how we can have it? Matthew 12, verse 20 Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We can live a life of love toward all because another prophet from Galilee one day plunged into the abyss of death. Not to run from God's will to love sinners, but in order to die for them. We have been saved. If we can say with the Spirit welling up within us with gladness, God loves me. If we've been saved and we can say with gladness in generic terms, God loves others. We need to realize that in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for sin, we have entered into the realm where we can love our enemies. We can love those that are hard to love and we can follow the commands of God and do what He wants us to do because of what Jesus has done to save us. He plunged into the abyss of death. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to take our place there, to pay that cost, rising from the dead, to give us new life and forgiveness of sin. And because of that work which He has done, we can love others. And there is no other way. We can love our enemies. I was talking to a group of men this week in the jail. And we talked through the way that various religions form and how they carry out their function, and it is always a joy for me to be able to note to them and say, as I did this week, I'm thankful that I follow a savior who calls us to lay our life down for our enemies, not to kill them, not to force them to believe, But where there are some, radical fringe undoubtedly, but where there are some faithful among various religions who force individuals to consider their salvation plan by atrocity and brutality and intimidation. There we find a deep depravity. But for those who have followed Jesus Christ on the radical fringe of obedience, they have given their life to die. And that's what God in his grace does with Jonah. He takes him from being a man who is running away and will not be the servant of God's love to certain people. And he walks him right into Nineveh, preaching the gospel, of repentance. Now there's a process that will have to take place, but as we watch in Jonah's experience, may God birth that same love in us. To not simply rejoice that God loves me, to not simply rejoice generically that God loves others, but to be willing to be an instrument of the love of God in difficult places to difficult people to the glory of God. Why? so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, we're the people who sacrifice? No, because this is how Jesus loved us. And if this is how he loved us, we have the privilege then to walk in his example and to so love others. Let's bow for prayer. Father, week after week, as you feed us your truth from the Word of God, we know we fall short, and we just say once again, we need you. This is beyond us. We are as oriented naturally as anybody else in this world to protect ourselves, to pursue our own happiness according to our own wisdom, but I pray that you'll transform this church, that you'll transform my heart to learn to love hard people in hard circumstances because, Father, this is how you loved us in Christ. I pray that this new life would change us, that it would be evidenced to a watching world that we don't live according to the normal pattern of self-protection and self-love that we live by a higher calling. May we be willing to lay down our lives even for our enemies, that they would hear the saving, gracious truth of God in Christ. Grant us patience with one another and grant us patience with the lost world. And God, I pray that you will nurture in the heart of Eden Baptist Church a passion to share the gospel and to love all people despite their sin To proclaim the message of Christ crucified and risen. We praise you together for Jesus who went three days and three nights into the realm of death. And we praise you for his resurrection power. May it be seen in us as we love our enemies and prove faithful to your calling. Help us to this end. If there is anyone that does not know Christ as Savior, I pray God that they'd stop running right now, this day. That You would open their eyes to see what they can never see on their own. That You would help them, Father, I pray, to respond to the gospel of Christ, trusting Him as the sacrifice for their sins and resting in His resurrection power. I pray that You'll draw any such a person to You. And Father, each one of us, we have got to face the sins that the Spirit of God has made clear to us today the places of rebellion, the places of running, the places where we don't like what your word says, help us to face them squarely, honorably, and to make changes. May it start now with our prayers and with our singing. It's beneath the cross of Jesus that we take our stand and thank you that you love us And that you love a lost and wicked world that needs saving grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen.